I was walking by a, a small indie bookstore a few weeks ago. There were three windows of books on display and all the books were about race. I don't think that would have happened a few years ago. Those books are just one sign of the change that Dana Kennedy has witnessed during her career. In her two decades as a reporter and editor at the New York Times, she covered politics, law enforcement, race, and class. She was part of the Pulitzer Prize-winning team behind the series How Race is Lived in America. Ms. Kennedy became the administrator of the Pulitzer Prizes in 2017, which has since honored a previously overlooked pool of talent. For example, the musician Kendrick Lamar won in 2018, and the late pioneering journalist Ida B. Wells was awarded a Pulitzer in 2020. In 2020, Ms. Kennedy became senior vice president and publisher at Simon & Schuster, the first Black woman to hold that position. Her life's work has been to uncover stories that weren't being told. Now, she's in an even more powerful position to bring more of them to light. I'm Brian Lowry, a professor of organizational behavior at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. This is Leadership for Society, a series of conversations that focuses on the most pressing issues of today. In this current series, we're talking about race and power. This time, I'm talking about the importance of the stories we tell with my guest, Dana Kennedy. So you've done a lot of work to push some stories that hadn't been getting attention out to the broader public. But what's your thinking about why those stories weren't there? Because those people are living lives that we all, many of us can see, but they didn't have a platform to tell their story or people weren't telling their story. How do you think about that? I think there are more stories out there than publishing gets credit for. Some of them are being done by small boutique publishers and presses, some by university publishers. They may not be front and center in Barnes and Noble sometimes or in Amazon, but increasingly the big booksellers are expanding the voices. They're doing more and more all the time. The other side, the contradictory side, is that I think particularly when you're thinking of narratives of people of color, we tend to think of them in, in bookends. The poor kid who grew up in the projects and made it to Harvard, and the kid who grew up in the projects and was shot in the streets by the police, right? People are drawn to those stories on either ends, but there are all these stories in the middle. And what I want to do as publisher is tell, of Simon & Schuster is tell more of those stories, and I'm committed to doing that. Let's think for a second about those stories in the middle. What kinds of stories are responsible for our understanding of life in Black communities? If most of what we hear is either Harvard or gang violence, it's no wonder that people have a skewed sense of justice. Things won't change until people really understand the experiences and challenges the average Black person faces. With Ms. Kennedy's deep background as a journalist, how does she try to amplify the voices of everyday people? It doesn't make news if somebody's going to work and getting promoted. Uh, you know, every day from, you know, factory worker to, to shift supervisor to what have you. Uh, and so there are some of those stories that uh, quite a number that just don't get told for sure. No question about it. And what we have to do is find ways to both have something to say about ordinary lives and get more of those voices out there in a way that people will connect with. I would like to use my book as an example, you know. Dear Jordan. If you are reading this book, it means that we got through the sorrowful years, somehow, and that you are old enough to understand all that I'm about to tell you. That's Bonnie Turpin, reading from the audio version of Dana's book, which was released in 2008. It was based on an essay she wrote for the New York Times about the death of her fiancé, 
U.S. Army Sergeant Charles Monroe King. I uh, was engaged to a wonderful man who was a, a soldier in the military, and he was killed in the war in Iraq when our baby was six months old. But he wrote a journal to him, 200 pages, and I wrote a book called A Journal for Jordan that connected with people all over the world. He wanted you to know to pick up the check on a date, to take plenty of pictures on vacations, to have a strong work ethic, and to pay your bills on time. He wanted to tell you how to deal with disappointment, to understand the difference between love and lust, to remember to get on your knees and pray every day. Most of all, he wanted you to know how much he loved us. And this started out, though, as me sitting in front of a blank computer and writing about a black man from Cleveland and me, a black woman from Kentucky and our love story and our love of our child. And it grew into this thing because people connected with the patriotism. They connected with a man writing to his unborn son from a war, right? And so we have to find ways, you know, there are ordinary people living extraordinary lives. And I think that's what my Charles represented. He's a hero, right? The stories written for Jordan by his father are being made into a feature film directed and produced by Denzel Washington. And I think the media in general does do this, you know, whether it's writing about firefighters, um, writing about, you know, people getting extraordinary scholarships or, or a kid entrepreneur, but, but not always the people who just are good fathers, good mothers, you know, who, who may play a small role in their church or in their communities, but have a meaningful life. And so when we can find those stories, we have to tell them. And that's, that's a challenge. There are stories like that out there. There's just not a lot of them about people that look like me. And by that, I mean, I, I don't know that if I, if I live an extraordinary life, it, wherever I come from, I think that that could be seen as story worthy. But if I just lived, a, you know, an interesting but middle class life and I look the way I look, I'm not I'm not certain that there's going to be a story written about me. No, I, I disagree with that. I think if there was a white factory worker in Detroit working in a factory and I went to my editors, in the New York Times and said, I want to write about this guy, they'd say, what's the next paragraph? There has to be a reason for that story. Right. Um, there has to be a, a news narrative. There has to be an arc to the story. So. It is true that our stories, stories of people of color, are the ones that are most overlooked no matter where you are on the spectrum. That's for sure. But I don't think there are a lot of books about anybody that are just about ordinary people living ordinary lives. There has to be a story there. Yeah, I guess I was thinking more on the fiction side, right? So when I, I read fiction where it's an attempt to like illuminate the, you know, the vagaries of life, and I don't see that many stories that are um, detailed and um, nuanced about people like me, right? So, I, so I agree with you on certainly in the real life in the nonfiction genre. But when you think about fiction and in that space, I don't see a lot of stories that capture the you know just the experience of life. Yeah, well, there can certainly be more. There's no question. But if you think about people like Colton Whitehead and some of the work that he's done, and and others, they are out there. Again, it's my challenge to make sure we amplify more of those voices. That's why I'm in this job. You brought up your memoir about your husband, um, which is honestly incredibly touching because it's so intimate. And then what, one of the things I thought about was um, your son. And also, you, you had an article about having a talk with your son. It made me reflect on the divergence in terms of like the way you both came up. Like, obviously, you are... I mean, you are intimately connected, as connected as people, any two people could be. 
And yet the experience of like you're coming up in Kentucky and him coming up, given the life that, that you all lead now together is an interesting divergence. And it makes me think about economic mobility and race and the complexities of all that. What's your story about that? Like, how do you experience that? I'm so proud of it. Every parent wants their ch- children to do better than they did. And, wa- and my child is smarter than me. He will be more successful than I will ever dream of being. He's more empathetic. He's kinder. He's funnier. That's what every parent wants. And with God's grace, that will only get amplified. But um, to get to that point, we had to overcome a lot of grief. You know, like I had to dig out of a hole. Um, his dad died in a Humvee in Iraq when he was six months old. And I say to people always, yeah, we're, we are where we are now, but it's not like anybody hit a fast forward button. It took a lot to get us to this point, a hell of a lot. And, and I say, and I'll say to anybody listening here today, success looks different at different points in your life. You are all at Stanford. That looks very successful. The day his father died, success for me was getting off the floor. And the next week, success for me was getting out of bed. And now success for me is publisher of Simon & Schuster. And so life has an arc to it. And so it's easy to say, wow, look how your son lives. But it took a lot to get us to this point. And I'd give it all back to have his father here. I was struck by the kind of the raw intimacy of some of your writing. So I wonder how you think about the importance of putting out that kind of personal narrative. What's the role of that personal narrative from your perspective? What you hope for is that in a life that's going to have ups and downs, that you have more ups than downs. But in those down moments, if you share those with people in a very honest way and then sort of, you know, uh, explain how you overcame them, or if you're telling someone else's story, if you're able to do that, you can almost feel readers collectively shaking their heads. Yeah, you know, I've been through something like that. And so I think at the core, we're all human first, whether you're red state, blue state, you know, Republican, Democrat, whatever. And so when you can connect on a personal level like that, it breeds understanding among people who may be very different because they realize, wow, you know, you may be a black woman and I might be, you know, an older white man, but I had that same experience with my child or I went through that with my parents or, you know, there was Alzheimer's in my family or whatever that connection is. And then you start to see each other as humans. And so those narratives, I think, humanize people who are from different backgrounds and make them relatable to each other. And that's the beginning of then being able to have a dialogue and be open to understanding people who may not be like you. That's certainly true. Also, though, it's, it depends, the power depends on who you're talking to, right? So it's people bring their lived experience to the stories they hear. So you tell stories and depending on the audience, those stories could mean very, very different things. So how, how, do you, how do you manage that? Well, you can speak to different kinds of audiences. There's one where you're pushing on an open door and that people are receptive to the information. There are other people who may be resistant. But even then, you can change hearts and you can change minds. It's so funny because I'll never forget, and I think a lot of journalists have had this experience, be out reporting something and someone will say, oh, you know, the press, I hate the press, you're all terrible, what have you. But then they'll say, oh, but not you. They say that to me too. They say that to me too, by the way, but different, different reasons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but person to person and one-on-one, people connect. And through words, you can still do that. Look, there are going to be some people you'll never reach. Most people are either, um, you know, very interested or at least open, I think, to expanding their minds and their, their points of view on things or at least wanting to be informed. 
Authenticity is such a big part of being able to connect. But how can you tell what's true? Who's to be the judge of what's true? And who do we trust to tell our story? In 2020, American Dirt by Janine Cummins was selected by Oprah Winfrey for her book club. The novel told the story of a Mexican woman and her son fleeing cartel violence, struggling to make their way to the U.S. I was deeply moved. It had me riveted from the very first sentence, and I could hardly wait, really, to share it with all of you. There was a swift and heated backlash against the book and its marketing, with critics and members of the Latinx community saying that Cummins misrepresented Mexicans and the migrant experience. Here's the book author, Janine Cummins, with Gail King on CBS. It is a migrant story. Involving Mexico. Mm -hmm. I always knew that I wanted to write about immigration. Um, I was interested in that topic, and I, I wasn't... I resisted for a very long time telling the story from a migrant's point of view because I was worried that I, that I didn't know enough, that my privilege would make me blind to certain truths. Also in the mix, the hashtag PublishingPaidMe gathered steam on Twitter, where writers of color revealed the advances they've received for their books. That ongoing thread revealed deep inequities in pay. Both controversies renewed the question of who gets to tell what stories, what those stories are worth, and who gets published big issues that Dana Kennedy tackles head-on in her role at Simon & Schuster. There's been some issues around who gets to tell the stories of ethnic minorities and Black folks in particular, but other groups as well in the industry. People have gotten a lot of pushback for writing about things that others thought they didn't have the credibility or shouldn't have been able to tell that story. I think, obviously, you want authentic stories. That's number one. And whoever can tell that story authentically is who should be telling it. Obviously, if you're writing about race, you want people who are living that experience to tell that story. But you also could have people who aren't necessarily living that experience, but are somehow, you know, related to that experience. In other words, if we're writing stories about the civil rights movement, obviously we want people who went through the movement. And that could be a black minister from Atlanta. It could be a white person who left a farm in Kansas to go march with Dr. King. I mean, so the answer is it's not one type of person who can, you know, write about someone's reality. It's um, whoever has the best up-close view, as long as you're including people who've actually lived it and are experiencing whatever the it is. Maybe there's a difference between living the story and telling the story authentically. What does it take to tell a story authentically? You have to do your research. You have to look at records. You have to know where your biases are so that you overcompensate for them. I, I was part of a team that won a Pulitzer Prize for writing about race in America. And I wrote a story about two newspaper columnists from Akron, Ohio, as part of this series, who were dueling in the newspaper over issues of race. And I realized I really didn't like the white guy in the story. And I was like, why is this? It was because he was macho. And so what I did was I spent a lot of time with him and his wife and his kids at his house, sitting by his pool, sipping iced tea because I needed to be authentic to him. I, his voice needed to be authentic in my story. And I knew I was having a visceral reaction to him. And so I went overboard to understand him and to make sure I didn't necessarily agree with some of his views, but that he was represented with his authentic voice. And so it can be done. It is hard to do, but the best work, and that's what we strive to do at Simon & Schuster is to buy books that we think where the author has an authentic story to tell, and then to use our editing skills to make sure we get at that. And oftentimes, an author will come in thinking they have an authentic story, and it's not until the fifth or sixth draft that you get there. I want to point out something was in an article um, that referenced you, talked about you in the New York Times, 
And it said, uh, Miss Kennedy is now poised to alter the culture and the divisions she leads and shape the landscape, right? And what you said is, what you're looking to do is to acquire books that are completely out of the box. What does that mean? What does that look like? What is it completely out of the box? So it means different things. It means what I was saying before about stories in between the bookends, but it could also mean a story told from Appalachia or from the Midwest, from a unique or an emerging voice. One of my strengths as an editor, and one of the reasons I did what I did at the New York Times for as long as I did, is I know those stories when I see them. And so as I'm going through this proposal, that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking, that's why Mindy is in Miami. So she can scout, you know, the territory there and, and tell the stories from the ground at the local level that we, we would may, never hear of in New York City. So I'm just starting to influence that now with some acquisitions that I've made, some that have been announced and some that haven't yet. Uh, it's going to take, take at least a year for me to really start having an impact in this regard. But I think it is, it is finding unique, different, emerging voices from people who may, not, may have not gotten a book deal from Simon Schuster before and taking a, taking a bet on those people and linking them up with good, good editors. And as I said, it could be a black author, but it could be a white author from, from Appalachia telling a story from there. When you think about what you're doing here, like what's, the, what's the consequence of something like that? Like, what are, you, what are you trying to achieve? So when this happens or when you put these books out of here that are outside the box, what's the goal? And how do you know if you're actually getting there? Engage people in conversations that enrich our understanding of one another enhance and uplift each other, foster real communications, and to, when you, when possible, get people who may have not ever uh, seen your point of view to at least consider your point of view. If I have authors who are making people angry, not in a provocative way just to be provocative, but because they're awakening something in someone, or if they're fostering understanding of something that a reader has never thought about from a different point of view, that's success. Now, obviously, publishing is a, is a money-making business. We want to sell a lot of books. Take, for example, the Mary Trump book, which was ours. That's a book where we took a chance. We didn't know, you know, who was going to want to read this book. And do you know it's now the best-selling book in Simon & Schuster's history? We sold one million copies on the day. Dana, you didn't know that out. was going to be a success. Come on. <laughs> no, no. Because you know why? I'll tell you. We didn't know she wasn't an author. Mm. We had an editor who was really brilliant. And, but you take a chance when you take an unknown author writing about a family member, even if it is the president, right? And to pull that together into something that's that powerful, even if we thought it was going to be a bestseller, which I'm not sure anybody knew at the beginning, we would have potential, which is why we took a chance on it. Nobody thought it would be the best, the best-selling book in Simon & Schuster history. It's incredible. Now, why is that? I think it's because, you know, Donald Trump has been so polarizing that people on both sides really want to understand him and his, and his um, hold on, you know, a, a huge part of this country. And she was the best person to, as it turns out, explain that because she knew him personally and she's also a psychologist. And so, you know, it, it had resonance and um, it's really... It, day the, the book is still selling well because people are still grappling with what just what what have we just been through as uh 
the head of a publishing house as a publisher in Simon Schuster, what's your role in terms of shaping policy? How do you think about that role of the broader responsibility to society? Our job is to inform, enlighten, and spur people to action. Those are the most, to my, in my view, the most successful books. And if you do that, you do influence policy, I, I suppose, in the end. So I, I think of it as using the power of words to influence. And then if you do that successfully, policy will change. So I'm going to go back to what the New York Times said about you, one of the most powerful Black women in the literary world, right? You make choices. The idea that like you're just informing people, like, yes, and there are choices you make about what information gets, gets amplified, right? How do you think about using that? My goal is to look as wide, but also as deep as we possibly can to find stories that... Um, you know, really influence what people think about culture, what they think about race, what they think about religion, uh, what they think about what's happening in Washington. And by the way, I don't have to recreate the wheel. Simon & Schuster's already doing that. What I need to do is just to make sure that we broaden the types of authors who are telling those stories, and I am doing that, that I hire editors that bring different perspectives, and that they're not all sitting in, you know, based in New York, working in parts of the country where they're on the ground and can be receiving the kinds of information in their communities that might make them think there's a narrative there that we wouldn't know sitting in New York. All of that, to my mind, influences the conversations I have with my editors about the books they acquire, the questions I ask them, the way I probe them the messages I send over and over about the kind of books that I want to acquire. Um, and I also think we're at a moment in this country where if you look at all the marches that went on with this racial reckoning that happened this summer, it was a real rainbow of multicultural, multi-everything force that came out. And I think we have an opportunity uh, to harness that still and capitalize on that. I think people are more open now than they've been in quite a while to wanting to understand this divide that needs to heal in this country and books and newspaper articles and documentaries and communication is what's gonna help us do that. Somebody has to believe in that or we have to give up. Stories tell us who we are and help us understand others. Importantly, they also suggest who we can be. Given the ongoing divides along racial and other lines in this country, we need narratives that connect and help us envision better futures more than ever. What stories will you tell? That's all we have time for today. Thanks to our guest, Dana Kennedy, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and publisher of Simon & Schuster. I'm Brian Lowry, and this is a production of Leadership for Society at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Thanks for listening.